Welcome to Capturing COVID, a podcast that takes experiences and turns them into memories. Today, you will hear from one of the many unsung and unknown heroes of the pandemic who taught me and many how to advocate for children, as well as she's taught me just tons about life and being a doctor and so many things that I just can't wait to have this conversation. As you know, we are passionate about giving our audience a resource to listen, relate, and reminisce on a time in history that the world will never forget the COVID-19 pandemic. So tune in for this approximately 60-minute episode. This one may go a little longer. With various special guests and inspiring stories with me, Jason Newland, a pediatric infectious diseases physician at Washington University in St. Louis, and the Schnook Family Endowed Chair of Pediatric Infectious Diseases at St. Louis Children's Hospital. All right, welcome, everybody. Hi, Mom. Um, my mom's the loyal listener, as people know, and uh, Katie Plax is our guest today. Dr. Katie Plax, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Jason. Nice to be with you. You know, um, we could talk probably for many hours, Katie. And our listeners should know that Katie and I uh, do a lot of work together, and that's really happened because of the pandemic. Is that a fair statement, mm-hmm. Katie? That's a fair statement. And it, it, I am just, I feel very blessed to have you as a friend, colleague, and uh, somewhat of a mentor and someone I can trust and talk with. So I just want to say thank Thank you for being that for me. Feeling is mutual and likewise. I've learned a lot from you, Jason, and I appreciate our friendship very much. So with that, just so people know, that's who Katie and I know each other well. Um, and, and we'll do this similar, but, you know, Katie and I will probably get lost in some of our conversations. And I hope you guys get to listen to what it's like to have two friends kind of talk about what life has been in, in our reflections. And I, I just look forward to doing this with you, Katie. So Katie is a native St. Louisan. Mm-hmm. Were you born in St. Louis? I was. So Katie was born, raised, and then went off to Brown University. And what was that like for uh, St. Louisan to leave the, the heart of the Midwest to head out east? Uh, it was an experience. So I was uh, clearly uh, not used to things on the East Coast. You know, I think one of the first things I noticed is just even walking down the street, I would say hi to people. People would not do that. <laughs> They were like, what is this girl doing? Um, so that was definitely a um, just a small tidbit. Uh, I, I really was not an East Coast person. Um, so, but I love Providence. It was a great place to be. Um, Brown University was wonderful. And it was nice to get to see a lot of things on the East Coast just because Providence kind of being in the middle of it all. Now, so people should know, um, Katie's an adolescent medicine physician here at WashU, um, and we'll, we'll talk some more of her titles, but you know, you, so you go to Brown, and then you graduate from the University of Rochester, so you still are on the East Coast, but there's seven years in between when you graduated high school yeah. to when you uh, graduated medical school, so yeah. that means you did some other things. I did. So, um, so I was not one of those people that knew exactly what she wanted to be when she grew up. And I started at Brown as a pre-med person. And I got into my biology class with 500 other people and I really didn't like it at all. <laughs> I love science and I majored in psychology and did a lot of cognitive science. And my starting um, the summer before my senior year, I worked for a small nonprofit agency called Facts House. And um, I worked very closely with a pediatric hematologist for a couple of years. 
and we went out to schools because this was the beginning of the AIDS epidemic and all kids with hemophilia had been infected with HIV. Oh, wow. So we went out to schools to encourage schools to let these kids come to school, um, even when they had HIV and AIDS. And Peter Smith was this physician. And after being with Peter for, you know, that summer and my senior year, I decided that I was going to work and go to school to finish to do pre-med. So I, I returned to pre-med. And so I took classes at night and I worked at Fax House and I learned a lot about everything having to do with HIV, which honestly has been part of my career in medicine for my whole life and was a clear reason why I wanted to go to medical school. And Peter really taught me how to be a doctor in community in a way that was deeply inspiring. And he was incredibly humble. He listened to everybody who came to these meetings and answered in ways that were so thoughtful and kind. And I was like, I want to be a doctor like that. <laughs> and I, I, and I are. really, I hope, I hope. You are. <laughs> well, I, I hope, I always aspire to that. Um, but he really showed me the way. And, and really it was because of him. And I would also say it was because of HIV that I went back and did my pre-med stuff and worked full time and, you know, did classes at night. And, uh, and I think it worked out great for me. I feel very fortunate. And I also feel really lucky because when I then got into medical school and went to medical school, I was really clear why I was there. And, um, and I actually continued to do work with the homeless when I was in medical school, just to remind me why I was doing this. <laughs> and, um, and that strategy worked really well for me. Yeah, it was the passion, right? You found the passion. Yeah, I, I really could tap into like, because I mean, I, I like science. I've always liked science. It, I like science for forever, um, but I also knew like I wasn't going to be fantastic at organic chemistry. Yeah, right. <laughs> so just because you brought up the HIV care, I met Katie for people to know. I, I as many of you know that, listen, I, I arrived in St. Louis in 2016 and I started on service. My first weeks of service would have been, I think it was June of 2016, and we had a a teenager with HIV and I met Katie and I remember leaving going, Ooh, I like her. I want to work with her more, but we like, I don't take care of HIV patients. And then I just was trying to get my feet wet. And I, um, I don't think we don't really cross paths until Woo Park probably right before the pandemic. Right. Yeah. Um, okay. So you go to university of Rochester and then you kind of, you, you start off in Boston and then you end up in, St. Louis back out here at WashU in 1999 to complete your residency in pediatrics. Yeah. Did you always know you were going to go into pediatrics and did you always know you might do adolescent medicine? Well, so it's interesting. Um, I debated a lot between pediatrics and internal medicine because I, I really like having relationships with patients over time. And um, what really convinced me about pediatrics is probably what is one of the reasons a lot of people go into pediatrics is I just loved all the pediatric people. 
yes. you know, I just thought the colleagues and pediatrics were pretty incredible. And the other thing I love about pediatrics is I, I love um, just how development and child development comes into the work that we do every day. And, and that every, that makes every, every patient unique and different and interesting. And, um, and so I think it was the longitudinal relationships, the um, development, and just the kind colleagues um, that for me, uh, pediatrics was a great choice. Was there any influence from your family in regards to pediatrics? I mean, you have a pretty, yeah. and I don't know yeah. if you like to talk about. Oh, no, that's fine. No, um, so my, yeah. So my um, dad was a pediatrician and my mom worked, she taught the deaf and she uh, founded and ran the Ledoux Early Childhood Center um, and became a uh, therapist to families with young children. So needless to say, our household was very involved in taking care of kids and families. And I actually, as a teenager, worked in my dad's office on Sundays, uh, which I loved. I would answer the phone and pull charts. That's when we had paper charts and, yeah. you know, just like help around the office. I can actually remember taking out the blood augers and doing the strep cultures for my dad. I thought that was awesome. I, I just really enjoyed it. Um, and like reading the cultures from his refrigerator, I'm telling you, it was it was really fun for a 16 year old. And um, so I really enjoyed all of that, which is why when I went off to college, I thought I was going to do medicine. Um, yeah. And so um, so, yeah, but I, I would say like I knew I always liked kids and a lot of my summer jobs were working with kids. But when it came to medicine, there's definitely this part in pediatrics that, you know, there's something about a sick kid that is a little bit different, right, than just working with well kids. Um, and so I think, you know, perhaps that gave me a moment of pause about like, well, do I want to be working with sick kids, right? Yeah. So um, so that was, I would say, a moment of pause. But yeah, absolutely. My, my dad and just kind of how he was as a pediatrician, of course, like had a huge influence on me. No question about it. Yeah, it's not many know that my dad, my mom and dad have a tremendous impact on me. And my dad being a physician, my mom a nurse was that watching them was and you and I talked recently about unconditional love and seeing that. I think that's I felt that from them. And I noticed that how they that's how they win in life. And I just I that meant something. And I, and I see that in you. I mean, we, we shared that together. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Why adolescent though? Why, why? I mean, here yeah. you have a dad that's a general pediatrician and you have a brother that's a general pediatrician, but you say, no, I'm going to go to the medical center and then I'm going to go get training in adolescent medicine. Well, yeah. Why the heck did you want to do teenagers? So I, um, I always really just enjoyed teenagers, you know, even just in, in residency and I just, I like that there's this like fresh approach to the world and I like the kinds of conversations that you have with teenagers and I, you know, I, I like just kind of all the ways that they call into question our assumptions um, and kind of a new way of looking at things that to me just makes my life better. And so I, I think it would, and I'll also say, um, I really appreciate that kind of um, like rebellious spirit, but I, it's not just rebellious spirit. It's also just like, I would even say questioning spirit. Um, that is, I think a 
a great part of adolescent development um, because I, as a teenager, was definitely one of those people. <laughs> I was questioning everything and why we did things a certain way and did it have to be that way and there are better ways and, you know, I was one of those kids writing to the president and, you know, letting them know what I thought and, you know, talking to the head of my school about what I thought. I, I was like my poor parents, you know, they had to deal with like me. <laughs> um, but, you know, I kind of like nurturing that in other people. I, yeah. I think it's, uh, I think it's, you know, kind of how the world gets to be a better place. Yeah. The spirit, this, the yeah, spirit, exactly. this, this spunk, but I like right. spirit. I like the word spirit in, yes, in addressing the, the things that don't make sense. Yep, um, I, I love that. That's fantastic. Okay, so people should know, Dr. Katie Plax is a professor of pediatrics and the Faring Family Chair Professor of Pediatrics and Adolescent Medicine here at WashU. And you were you got that a chair was awarded to you, I mean, many years ago, like 2014-ish, is that fair, or when was that? Yeah, I think that, I, I want to say, it was either 2014 or 2015, and you know, huge shout out to the fairings, right? Like that, so generous to give a chair. And um, both of them are just amazing people that I'm lucky to know. And I also just feel really uh, grateful about their interest and support of the work we do in community. And, um, you know, I think that was just a, a great match and um, I was really lucky. Luck favors prepared mind. I'm just going to drop that one there, right, um, in some respects. But I, I would say that, and just so people that aren't in the academic world, I mean, to get a chair for us is one of these, like, you, you, it's a humbling, great, you feel so grateful for it. I, I mentioned my chair, and as you said, you have this family that believes in you, believes in what you're about. And we'll get into, we're going to get into the spot and the stuff. I, we, we are going to get there. But I, I, I just, just so people know, I mean, you have done amazing stuff that's been recognized at a level at the highest level of the academic world which 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 should be commended and i and we need to thank you for that work as the faring family did so thank you thanks jason okay so let's now go to covid i want to talk COVID. now as i said katie i knew knew of katie i thought katie was amazing in this my brief interaction and and then COVID happens and I get to talk with Katie a lot. Now we'll get to why I had to talk with Katie, but I want to ask that common question I've asked on all the episodes, which is Katie, what was it like for the Plax family, your immediate family, your husband, your sons, the, the, the rest of the Plax family in March, or maybe even before, around the time the pandemic really started in 2020? Well, so it's very interesting. So the end of February of 2020, I was in New York City and I was in New York City for this annual meeting of a fellowship that I had been part of since 2000. So we were awarded a two-year fellowship to do an advocacy project, and then we continued to meet annually. And so I was in this meeting with all of these physicians who do a lot of advocacy, and one of them happened to be the head of the New York City Health Department. <laughs> so. So, and it was the last day in February and she is getting pulled out of the room nonstop. Nonstop. Right? And then she lets us know, like, guys, I'm not gonna be here tomorrow. It's here. And like, so her, her name's Oxiris Barbeau. And we are like, okay. 
So, because, you know, we've been, all of us read the newspaper, we've been seeing what's going on in China and around the world. And, and then I am to fly back on March 1st. And so I, um, I go to see To Kill a Mockingbird. You that to Kill a Mockingbird? I did. I go to see the play To Kill a Mockingbird that night. It was incredible. I mean, and then I get on a plane next day and it's kind of weird in the airport. I'm just going to say like some people were even then like starting to wear masks, which in New York City and then um, get on my plane, come home and then, you know, forest fire, baby. Yes, exactly. And I um, so, yeah, so then, you know, it. Two weeks later, um, and then I was supposed to go to California to visit a good friend of mine from college who is an adult infectious disease doctor um, in Northern California. And so I'm like, hey, should we come? Should we not come? And like, you know, and then like within a week, she's like, do not come. You will never get back. And then it's my kid's spring break. And basically after spring break, no one's going back to school again, right? So, so it was something. And then I would say that very quickly, you know, we were having all these meetings in the department and um, we were thinking about what we were gonna do at the spot. Um, so this is this youth center that I run that's walk-in. We serve 13 to 24 year olds and, you know, we're, trying to get the best information. I had many conversations with you and in my own family. So my husband has insulin dependent diabetes. So we're thinking about that. And my mom is in her eighties. So we're thinking about that. And I have two kids at home and we have no idea what we're, you know, I mean, nobody at that time knew anything of what school was going to be. We were just like, getting through spring break. Yep. And um, I kind of pulled together with some people at this spot, because at this time, then in a, in a few weeks, really by April, I think it was really within a month, you know, folks were trying to figure out like, who is gonna be home, who, you know, like, and, and we decided, and um, I would say it was me deciding and my very gracious, thanks with, for your advice and um, the very gracious people I work with who are on my team, who I would do anything with and for any day. Um, we decide that three of us are gonna keep the spot open. And uh, so we we never closed the spot. And we went through uh, like everything that everybody else went through with COVID, you know, like there were no tests and then, you know, how are we going to get tests and would our people be a priority for testing? And then, you know, just, and how would we keep ourselves safe? And I can, you know, remember like getting back into scrubs for a period and where were we going to get our PPE? And, um, you know, I, I mean, there were just so many moments, but um, one of the just kind of things I'll never forget is in that um, in that first six weeks or, you know, where a lot of pediatrics shut down doing outpatient work, um, we saw over 400 young people at the spot. Wow. Yep. 
And that really, like, we continued to see young people. And I just, I'll never forget that time. Um, and I'll, I'll honestly never forget COVID at the spot ever. But I just remember, like, our front desk person, Alicia, and one of my nurses, Carrie, and just their incredible dedication and just bravery, honestly, because at that time we were all really scared. You know, we were doing this scared. Yeah. Well, and, and so just so people know, the, the SPOT, Katie brought this up and I was trying to figure out how do I bring this up? So let, it, the SPOT stands for Supporting Positive Opportunities with Teens Organization. It's the clinic, it's the adolescent clinic. And I don't, Katie, do you want to, like you said, it's a drop-in free clinic, but who, who are the people that you utilize the SPOT clinic mainly so that our our listeners can get a sense of why this was so important that you remained open during this time yeah so um you know typically we we see um anywhere between two and three thousand young people a year and about 80 percent of our population is african-american 25 percent of our population identifies as lgbtq um, we also uh, have primary care clinics for youth with HIV and youth in foster care. And um, so that's pretty typical of our population. We, our age tends to skew older, so it tends to, you know, be the older teen young adult group, um, although in foster care it can be the whole age range. Um, and a lot of what we do is really um, provide health and social services under one roof. So this includes case management, so you can get linked to resources in the community. It includes, um, you know, psychiatry. It includes therapy, uh, the medical services, a lot of which are focused on um, sexual and reproductive health just because of the age we're serving. Yep. Um, so... Yeah, so I think that's probably a pretty fair uh, representation of who we see. And the, during this time when you you stayed open, and there was a lot of people that like they, especially late, late March, people were trying to figure out how does it, how to even be open. Did you get even more patients from other practices that people would drop in, or what? What do you think was that you were seeing so many? It sounds like you were seeing more than typical. So for one, um, at that time, for about six weeks. We were the only place in the city open for STI treatment in oh, the way wow. that we were. So sexually transmitted infection treatment, no one else was open because right. the county, the health departments weren't open. Correct. And so like other practices, I mean, I don't know about all the practices. I mean, like in our kind of setting where people could walk in and yep. get treatment. And, you know, that was probably for about two months, but yep. I think that was significant for our increase um so i think that was one thing and then i think the other thing was you know we we had things thanks to people you know i like we had medical students dropping off cloth masks for us to give out right because at that time we didn't know what kind of mask we needed to wear and they were making them at home which was fantastic and they were beautiful and colorful and we gave them out and so then people would come for those things so i think you know, there was some of that, but I think probably the main driver was the treatment. Gotcha. Something that I don't think many have talked about, and I don't, and you took care of these, you've taken this, is foster kids. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I don't, I'm not sure we have any information about what it was like as a foster kid during COVID, knowing that the system in it of itself, crazy. I, I don't know. There's probably a better yeah. word than that, but yeah. it is a, it's a sad heart. So what was that like? Yeah, I would say that was probably some of the hardest um, work we did at the spot in that, um, you know, I think... Um, Child welfare is just really challenging, period, right? Like, um, we know um, it's hard work with kids who have experienced a lot of adversity and have been hurt. And at the time, imagine, you know, things are happening in kids' home where they're experiencing physical sexual abuse or, you know, neglect, which is really largely related to poverty. And then um, the workers who, you know, were, I'm sure, also incredibly afraid of getting COVID needed to go do the investigation and in some of those cases remove kids. But then foster families didn't want to take in more people given COVID quite, I mean, very understandably, right? Yeah, makes sense. Yeah. And so then the shelters and the residential places where where were a lot of these kids ended up going, even if it was for a 30 day stint, you know, while other things were being worked. So and in the meanwhile, lots of people were getting sick, (laughs) you know, like lots of these child welfare workers were getting sick. And kids were getting sick. And then they were going to these shelters, which were not set up for any kind of social distancing. And basically, like, shelters would close because COVID would just, like, run through these places, right? So then I think after that initial, like, it was like, oh, like, (laughs) we're not. Then what would happen is when kids would come into the shelters, they would literally almost be, I hate to say this, but like in jail. So they would be isolated in rooms for several days at a time to make sure they didn't have COVID, right? Like, so to make sure you didn't bring them in and then they got symptomatic. And we would often see the kids in these times because they needed their comprehensive physical exams, right? So just to make sure like their medical needs were being met and nothing. And I mean, it was just so sad to, um, you know, these kids had just been, I mean, no matter who you are, no matter what is going on in your household, being removed from your family is just a big trauma. And um, so these kids were removed and then they were isolated in these rooms to try to prevent widespread, you know, shutting down of these facilities and these shelters and so they a lot of them were really felt like i don't i don't know all the ins and outs because i don't run these places but they really felt like they were all alone and and that there was nothing for them to do and also i mean schools were shut down so really like there wasn't a whole lot for them to do and i mean just the utter despair i i just you know of all those things. And while I can understand all the decisions that were made to try to keep places open, 
so that other kids could live there safely and the staff could be there safely. It was just devastating, honestly. It, it was truly devastating. And, you know, it. I was reminded, like, I, I mean, foster care isn't great on the best of days, right? Like, it's just hard to be a teenager in foster care. And then with this, it just the devastation and trying to be with people in their really, be with young people in really some of the most heartbreaking situations. And then also, I mean, you know, some of the kids were in care because their families got sick and died, you know? So it was just so much loss, so much grief, you know, kids who had been living with their grandparents and, you know, or their grandmother and then their grandmother passed and just these organizations that, were really not equipped medically to do all of this and also had the same struggles of trying to get PPE and trying to get testing. Right. It was just a terrible storm. Yeah. I was reminded, um, uh, you know, when I first got into working with kids in foster care, woman, her name is Mary Taylor. She's a lawyer um, in the city courts who ran a nonprofit that provided lawyers to youth, you know, she would always remind me, even if you couldn't change the system, that, um, you know, if you're going to, quote, be in the sewer or be in the worst place, that you don't have to be there alone. And I really tried very hard in all of this yeah. just to remind myself, like, okay, like, these young people are here with us. They're, you know, even if they're here for an hour or two, um, and they don't have to be alone in this and we can reach out to them and, you know, we can have them come back and they can be here with us. We can offer snacks that kids like, we can, you know, offer some masks, we can sit with them in their sadness. And I just really tried to keep that in top of the mind yeah. and you know, there were some awful days of doing that. I mean, I'm not going to pretend um, that that was an easy thing to do. It was not an easy thing to do. I'll never forget it. And it was at that time where, honestly, we, um, so we have this parking lot at the back of the spot. And, you know, I would come out of the room after being with a kid for a while, and I would be like, I'm going to take the parking lot for five. And then I would like, <laughs> I would walk outside right. the back door, walk around the parking lot. And now, honestly, like it's such a part of what we do at the spot that like every lunch almost at the spot on Tuesdays, which is our day we do foster care all day, we're all like in the parking lot for like at least our five minutes, you know, at like somewhere between 1245 and one. Um, so it really became, I would say, uh, one of those like special places at the spot that uh, was was really important. Those were some of the hardest moments, but the moments in the parking lot and the moments of that like team uh, spirit in the parking lot were honestly like some of the moments that I'll I'll never forget. Normally those kids having a place like there to, to get some well, good vibes. We, we hope so, you know, is, you know, I think youth in foster care often aren't talked about very much. And um, 
it is, you know, on average, youth in Missouri have four to five placements if they're teenagers. And that's a lot, you know, if you're trying to go to school and you're trying to learn the rules of a home and um, you're trying to kind of be a teenager in the world. And, you know, these kids have faced a lot of really significant adversity that we know is good for no one, right? It's it's not good to experience that kind of trauma for anybody. So, um, you know, I think I always like to take opportunities to give a shout out about foster care and the needs of young people in foster care or who have been in and around foster care just so we think about them with uh, compassion and empathy. Yeah. My shout out. <laughs> no, that it's. No, it's really good. I, I guess one of the questions I have, how did how did that change over yeah. the pandemic during the times with this? I mean, early on, it was so hard because all this, but how did well, it change? It definitely as we- changed as we got access to testing and then, of course, vaccines. Um, so, yeah, you know, the testing really, when we got more access to testing, then kids could be tested, you know, prior to going into these places or at entry into these places. And, you know, we got the test back faster. And so then we could really have them be um, with other kids in the, you know, whole shelter environment or residential environment. Um, And so that that did change things a lot in terms of the isolation. Um, What I think has and remains a challenge is um, the workforce, the child welfare workforce. Um, because so right. many people got sick and so many people just did not want to take that kind of risk. And also just the behavioral health needs were so high for these kids that also just, you know, being physically hurt, you know, because of the trauma these kids experienced. So I think, uh, and the pay for these positions being so low, I think just it was like the perfect storm for a very hard job to become so much harder and um, we we just don't have the workforce that's needed even today um, which frankly is not that different than healthcare either just by the way and you know I think yep. um, the behavioral health needs for all kids are really high and for these kids are even higher yeah well I wow I I almost need, yeah. I need the parking lot right now. I, I, yes. So that, but that's a, not, that, that is a segue to the other thing I want to talk about, which is mental health. You know, you, you have taught me and I've watched you lead efforts, especially in our community for our general pediatricians around addressing the mental health needs. Now I have said on this podcast and elsewhere, you know, that the mental health crisis in kids was happening Absolutely. prior to the pandemic. Yep. You said yep. see it. And the pandemic just exacerbated it, so now everyone can see it. I mean, is that oh, fair from yeah, your eyes? Absolutely. Seeing day-to-day patients, especially We teenagers? weren't doing well, you know, from 2010 to 2019. Um, if you look at, you know, um, behavioral health or, um, you know, people dying by suicide, the numbers were going up. And then yes, the pandemic made it a lot worse. And, you know, the other thing is we, we took away school <laughs> and 
school is a place where a lot of kids uh, get support and get mental health care and treatment um, and are around trustworthy adults who offer buffering support in the face of adversity. And so I would say for me, I, that's where, you know, we really like dug in and got to work about yeah. helping kids go back to school because what I recognized is it being home and being home on Zoom, um, if you had access to Zoom, which many of my patients never got access to school for all that time, um, or did so in ways that were really not um, realistic for many kids. And that was also true in my own household. So I, I have a, and he's given me full permission to talk about him. I love it. Um, so, um, so my 16 year old has um, dyslexia and a executive function learning difference. And asking my kid to learn this way over video was just, I mean, and he would say himself a complete disaster. Um, for a lot of kids with learning differences, they really need context and they need engagement in different ways that you just can't do over Zoom. And you know this from your work at Special School District. So given all of this, I just felt like because of mental health, because of learning differences, because of what kids need to feel okay in the world, you know, school was obviously critical for education, but school was also critical for child well-being. And um, yes, we wanted to make sure everybody in schools was safe and well, and just really recognized how important for kids it was to get back into the classroom in person. And so that's where you and I really did a lot of work. But, you know, I remember you and I talking during this time on a for you clinically that your inpatient service had never yep. been busier. You were and you were seeing some of the most tragic, whether it was eating disorders, mental health, all of these things. And I just remember every time you went on service, you're like, man, it's absolutely heart wrenching and yep. busy. It was very sad. You know, there there's been a huge increase in eating disorders as you know during the pandemic and continues and you know just a whole nother area of illness where you know um eating disorders and isolation is, is a bad combination um and isolation i think really um worsens the course and severity of eating disorders. And these are things that really take team approaches and a team of professionals to improve. One of the pieces is medical people, but of course, another really important piece of this is therapists. Um, another piece of this is, you know, dietitians, but also just settings that are supportive of wellness. and. That's yeah. really hard in isolation in a home. Yeah. And and just even having facilities, like just dedicate that, like finding placement where they need all of those yes. things together. Yeah, we, um, it, it really, for the eating disorders, you know, we used to know kind of the programs locally and in the Midwest. And during this pandemic, we 
actually learned about programs all over the country um, because the need was so high and where people needed, when people needed that kind of intensive care and treatment, we really had to look across the country because everywhere, you know, it, this was across the country that we were, we were seeing this explosion in eating disorders. No, I, I, I wanted you to go there just in the sense, just because I just, from talking to you, I remember being like, oh my goodness, how does she do this every, but, and I think this gets us back to the, this yeah. notion of school as a school for, for whether it was a foster child where you got an extra level of support, or it was the, the, the young person who had the eating disorder that really needed that extra, a place of comfort that right. was their friends. Cause that's where their, their social networks were in school. And we did some pretty yeah, cool stuff. We did with our colleagues, right? Around like, this and, and, and our colleagues. And I say we, the, it's, it's, a, a it's a large we. we. So but here's kind of how it got going. And I, I'm going to tell the story. This is how I remember the story, Katie. So if we take ourselves back three years about, so July of 2020, I, I we told this story on the podcast. I kind of got myself in trouble um, with the county executive. And what you also have to know is Katie has some pretty good chops when it comes to the, the political uh, landscape and how politics works, not only locally, but I'd say you have some good sense nationally as well. And I got myself in some big trouble where I was somewhat recognized too much by leaders of our local county. And I, I went to Katie and I said, Katie, what do I do? And you said to me, and I will always remember this. She says, Jason, one of the keys of doing this is you go in groups. You don't get yourself out there where it's just one or two, because then they can target you and they can do whatever they want, kind of, when it comes to politics. And that was around July, August, September, 2020. Is that, is that what you're remembering of, of kind of how we really started having deeper yeah. conversations about this work? What I remember is having a very clear conversation about power. Um, and what I mean by power is the ability to act to make a difference. And I actually like the Hannah Arendt philosopher definition, which is um, the ability to act in concert together um, to make a difference. And I really believe that, you know, uh, in community organizer training, um, you know, power is about organized money and organized people or both. In pediatrics, we don't usually have a lot of money. So if we're going to advocate for kids, we're gonna to have to organize people. And that's where really going together and doing things together and acting in concert together for kids um, and kids' well-being to me is a really important part of advocacy. And so that is part of the work that I do and um, something I've learned over many years and where many generous people have taught me, you know, how to how to do this um, well. And I think we use that in our advocacy work around COVID and that we, you know, very quickly, um, Jason, you created this listserv, right? Like the magic of the listserv. There were so many questions coming and, um, you know, we had people joining this listserv that Jason created that, um, you know, I, it was just 
remarkable the kinds of questions and then you were so incredibly dedicated to answering all those in the best way possible with the most information we had as soon as possible and then i was fortunate enough to be in partnership with you and was like hey you know all these people are on this and we can use this to make sure kids are not forgotten in the mix right so um because quite rightly i will just say adults needed to be the focus at the beginning adults were right way sicker way adult it was adults who were dying um and there yep. that was the majority of where the infections were and um we you know wanted uh testing for adults <laughs> and yes. we also recognized however like many things in pediatrics that you know young children um don't have the same abilities to do things like wash their hands, right? Um, you know, what self-respecting three-year-old washes their hands perfectly? And so I think it was this kind of balance that we were trying to strike in that moment where really it was clear devastation on the adult side. Um, just don't forget about kids and don't forget that kids can be important um, if you're trying to stem infection to adults. <laughs> and it was kind of that balance we were trying to strike as well as just our recognition that we didn't know what this disease looked like in kids and that was kind of like one of our most exciting first partnership forays right oh yes where really a lot of pediatricians you know we kind of put together some simple data sheets about symptoms and a lot of pediatric practices were willing to fill these sheets out and send them back to us so that we could better describe what COVID looked like in kids, right? And I mean, that was huge, right? I mean, we learned a lot. Um, we better understood COVID and we also interestingly found out that actually along the way that kids who were actually in daycare at the time actually seemed to be have less cases, um, which was very interesting. And so I, I think just that kind of partnership and that kind of rapid deployment of everybody contributing to science was really honestly one of the highlights of my career period. And that kind of teamwork and just cooperation, it was really just incredible. It was incredible. I, I, I will, I'm with you. I think that paper, the lead author, we'll put it in the show notes, is Liza Harrison, who was, is one of our community pediatricians. She was one of the major leaders. And it was, it was remarkable how everyone came together to do this. We had like over 2,000 patients and our colleague, Jane Garbett, who's now retired, who was leading Wu Park and Sherry Dodd and Shannon and this crew that really supported us to do this project in the beginning of the pandemic it was kind of July, August, September of 2000 was really remarkable. And I and I get chills every time I talk about that paper. It was amazing. It was really amazing. And I was glad and, and well, but here was one of the keys of that paper is it became an advocacy paper because we had done this advocacy that you would let like, thank you for those kind words about the listener, but you had kind of taught us and, and inspired the crew on this listserv that, yeah, we can do some letters and those letters would matter. Cause I don't, honestly, Katie, we wouldn't have done it if you didn't think it was going to matter. And I guess what I want 
I want what what were the things you said group was key, but what were the other what's the key takeaways of these letters that were so important, made them so effective? Because I would argue they were very effective, especially for our kids getting back to school. If you look at what happened here, we went back to school a lot faster than a lot of other places. So what I think was important is the number of people who signed on. And so, I mean, and it was even said to me, you know, politicians would say to me, oh, I see my pediatrician on there, you know? Um, So it was number and it was relationships, right? It was, and it was clear that we were all together on what we wanted to have happen. And that we were, we were out here in practice doing what we do for kids. And this is what we thought, given everything that we saw and given the data that we had. Um, so it was that kind of, that's why I think it kind of makes our, you know, spines tingle in good ways in that it was kind of this amazing kind of overlap between what I call science, love, and power. So, you know, we we did the science, we knew what it looked like, we knew what our patients looked like, we knew what the symptoms looked like. Love, in this case, to me, is just really like, we love kids. And we really wanted to be working on their behalf for a different outcome than what was currently going on. And then power was really us acting together so that things would be different for kids. And I think that was really what we were able to do several times in important moments. And I'm really grateful for, you know, I mean, I'll just, that is, I'll just never forget, you know, like just on the listserv, like I'll sign on, I'll sign on, you know, just as they would roll in and it it would always, you know, no matter what kind of day I had, it would just be like, and you took that extra minute to let me know you wanted to sign on. Like, I don't know how to express my gratitude for that, but it was like this like beacon of light in a lot of hard moments that like, no matter what was going on and how crazy your day was, you, you wanted to make sure your name was on there. And that was just remarkable. Yeah. You, that, you wrote the paper, Science, Love, and Power, yep, right? Isn't I did. there a paper on that? It was in um, Academic Peds. It, it's, it's, it's brilliant. Uh, and I and now I remember vividly looking at that going, oh, yeah, that's it. I would say that paper, just so we're clear, I think it forgot one thing, which I now add to the model, which um, is an eraser. And um, the reason I add that in is that I feel very strongly that we got to erase the margins. And by that, I mean, like, everybody in. So whatever your race, ethnicity... Um, your sexual orientation, your gender identity, everybody is welcome and nobody is on the margin in this work. And that, you know, that, that is, I think one thing that I've adjusted the model to represent and I hope I can live up to its ideals. Uh, You more than live up to those ideals. The question I have to put you on the spot is, are you going to maybe write another version of this um, coming off the heels of COVID? Because I do think that'd be a really um, I hadn't. I hadn't, like, it's funny, I've given talks about this, but I hadn't thought about uh, writing coming off of COVID. So that's a good, that's a good, um, what I will call a, a nudge for... <laughs> <laughs> 
I'm happy to help. Um, because I believe strongly in how this because you taught me. I mean, you taught me and showed me, and it and it's inherent to who I want to be as well. I you know I think that's why there's this connection mm-hmm. between us is because we have these similar finds. I think you know Sheridan, uh, one of our amazing producers here, you know, found one of your quotes that that to me really does epitomize you, which is there's one thing that doesn't cost money which is kindness. And, and I would say that's how you always do. I hope so. You know, everybody has, I just, you know, we have to be generous to ourselves. Everybody has a moment, but, you know, I, I really believe that, you know, and I really want to try to, you know, be kind to people even, you know, when it's a rough day. And I really want to try to dig deep for kindness because honestly, when I live my life that way, it, it actually makes my life better. And, you know, I, yeah. so I, I think it's, and, and that is definitely like, that, that was the way my dad lived his life. Um, it was very important to him. He always talked about kindness as a value. And, you know, I, I do hold that dear. Yeah, it, it, that's awesome. And I, I know he, he means a lot to you, and I'm sure it was hard. I know it was hard in the pandemic. Oh, definitely. So, um, you know, my dad passed in 2018. And yes, there are many times in the pandemic where I wondered, hmm, I wonder what my dad would think about this, <laughs> you know? Um, so, and, you know, I know um, my brothers in pediatrics too. And sometimes we would just talk like, I wonder what dad would have thought about this. And also, um, you know, uh, just, yeah, you just kind of want that pediatric advice, but also fatherly advice, right? So you want both. Yeah. I, I, I'd be remiss not to ask this. What was, you worked with Education Plus, uh, just so the uh, folks listening, Education Plus is like a cooperative that um, links a lot of the school districts here, public school districts in the St. Louis region. And so it helps them financially and, and was a lead and helped them coordinate their leadership in getting back to school. What was, how did you, what did you feel about, or what was your experience with not only them, but just mm-hmm. our schools as we were working through this advocacy in yeah. partnership with them? Um, I would say working with Education Plus was really amazing in that listening to these superintendents who really wanted to get kids back to school and the challenges that they faced and all of the things they needed to change and do in their schools and for the families, for their teachers and their staff. Uh, It was remarkable to see that kind of leadership in action and that kind of dedication to all of those groups of people was really remarkable. I really appreciated them coming forward when, you know, things didn't work or really they're like straight talk, you know, just like, you know, hey, like we just can't do that that way. Can we do this? Can we do that? And it, it was really a remarkable example of the interplay between um, health, education, and public health. And that is rare um, and really important. And I hope is one of those lasting legacies of things we can continue to do 
in the future because um, I think we're going to need it for mental health. And we, we had some, you know, inroads around that, but I think um, we're going to continue to need that kind of partnership to improve kids' well-being. Did that experience in reflecting back on everything we just did and educate us remind you or feel anything like what you started off as you were going with the hemophilia and yeah yeah i it, it definitely did yeah it, it's funny that that's a really well you know what's really interesting about hiv in general is you know dr fauci has been a leader in hiv for forever right and you know if you go to the national um, HIV, it's called Ryan White. Uh, Ryan White was actually a teenager who died of AIDS. He had hemophilia and he was an amazing advocate. Yes. Before he died, he spoke to Congress and in communities across the country about why kids with HIV and AIDS should go to school. And an act passed dedicating um, money to HIV care and treatment, and it was named after him. And his mother always comes to the HIV, the Ryan White HIV conference. And Dr. Fauci does too. So for a long time, I had this stellar example, both in Peter Smith and in Dr. Fauci, these folks who could take these very complicated medical problems and translate them so that everybody could understand because one thing about the HIV conference is it's always included people who were infected with HIV and their families. And so I I think that that ability to translate across disciplines so that everybody can understand is a gift that some people really have and is so necessary for health and public health going forward. You know, we have to explain things in ways folks can understand, and sometimes those things are complicated, and we have to do everything in our power to still explain things in ways people can understand so that they can make good decisions for themselves, their families, and help others in their community make good decisions too. And we definitely saw that play out in vaccination, right? You know, it's people would yes. come and get vaccine and then they would tell their family about getting vaccine and then they would tell their neighbor about getting vaccine. And yep. that is really important in making sure that people get access to things that keep them safer. I think Dr. Fauci, I hope he goes down in history, not for the COVID stuff, because he did amazing stuff COVID because he worked so hard to help and make sure things, make sure we had a vaccine and all those things. But his work in HIV Oh, was and... The other thing I just want to say is one of the things, and, and I feel like this happened in COVID too, is that, you know, one of the things with HIV is that, like, we all had to change a lot, right? Like, you know, and yeah. advocates really drove that change. I can remember, you know, going to, like, uh, you know, ACT UP. Right. And I can remember the quilts being displayed in Washington and the protests and the and really it was those incredibly brave advocates who changed Dr. Fauci. And he would say this himself. Right. And I also think that that's an incredibly powerful model for us as physicians that like 
right? Like we can be wrong. We can change. We can make it better. We can listen more deeply. We can keep listening um, and we can keep trying to get it right, you know, and and I'll just never forget those kind of early days in HIV because me watching all this happen over the course of my career, I think it is really a very powerful demonstration. And and I think COVID reminded us all of that again, right? Like, oh man, you know, like, yes. hey, we didn't know we were supposed to be wearing masks at the beginning. Yep. And then we learned, right? And, you know, we didn't, we, we just didn't know all the things that we know now um, that keep us safer. And I, I think we had to keep changing and our ability to do that as quickly as we could really helped. Yeah. And there's a grace in doing that, right? There's a grace in in being open to being wrong and to move on because there's sometimes that notion we're just supposed to know everything all the time. Jason, I have to say, I think that's one of your superpowers. So I think your ability to say, oh, I got that wrong. You know, uh, honestly, I think it's one of your superpowers. And I well, I do you. think, and, and I've come over the year, the adolescents have taught me this that I work with is that sometimes you really just have to apologize because you got it wrong or you didn't get the story right or you didn't understand what was really going on for them. And um, it has always been remarkable to me that when you admit you made a mistake or you apologize for something you didn't do right, the deepening of the relationship often happens in those moments. Vulnerability, um, being okay with that, making sure people are knowing that you're there with them and whether you're right or wrong, no matter what, that you're always there. Yes. Matters. Will yeah. always matter. It's probably good for life too, just to admit you're wrong. <laughs> no, yeah, no doubt. it's good. It's good for uh, our profession, but it's also just, you know, good for life. So it's a good life advice. I agree with that. Okay. I got a couple, I got, I got a couple of more COVID questions, um, but how has the COVID pandemic changed the way you view the healthcare system and the healthcare community? Well, I will say I, I really always want to make sure that the best care and treatment gets to those who are most vulnerable. And, you know, and so I, I think just the focus on that for me got even more so. I think that's always kind of been why I do medicine, but I, I think yeah. the focus on that and the degree of that has got has gotten even stronger for me. And also, the other thing is really trying as much as possible to continue with taking care of the whole person, you know, and like there were little things that we did that, you know, people at the spot did that were so remarkable, you know, and that I don't know that I would always have thought of them, you know, like it, it was yes. things like, yeah. okay, you know, we're going to have shelf stable meals and we're just going to give them out if people need them. And we're not even, we're just going to offer them. We're not going to ask, do you need a meal? We're just going to say, hey, we have these meals. Do you want one? You know, and um, we got all these menstrual hygiene supplies. Cause remember that was like a whole thing yep. in, um, you know, uh, right supply chain. And so it was like, we were putting together you know, these, and we got kits actually given to us, you know, with masks and um, hand sanitizer. And then we had these, you know, period kits and shelf stable meals. And it was just like, all those things were really ways that we could show people like, we, we care about you. We know this is a challenge right now. And 
it was amazing how resourceful the people at the spot were at pulling all these things together in ways that worked. And I'm super grateful that we still have a lot of that, you know, and I think those were important reminders in COVID that like little things matter. And, and team mattered, right? Like you have this incredible team, like everybody, and they, they, did, they did extra. extra. They did, yes. And um, yes, way extra all the time. Okay. What was the most influential thing that someone has told you that helped you through the COVID-19 pandemic? You know, it sounds like one of the things that someone told me is there were definitely like dark days. There were really hard days. And, you know, one of the best pieces of advice, you know, that someone just reminded me of when I was like, oh, I want to do more. And they, they reminded, you know, they just kind of said to me, you know, you know, you do realize like you are enough. And that really, I don't, I like that was deep for me. <laughs> you know, uh, that, that was very profound thing to tell me. And, you know, it, it was amazing kind of the relief that gave me. So I, I, you know, I'm, it sounds so simple, but in believing it and hearing it, it was really helpful. It's perfect, right? It's such a hard time. We all felt like we were never doing enough. And just to hear that must have been just such yeah, a... Yeah, it really touched my heart. I can... Yeah, uplifting in a way that, you know, another chilling spine type. I know, right? Okay. All right. Whew. <laughs> I know. It really was. It was one of those oh, moments boy. where I was just like, oh, thank you. And I'm going to go cry over there. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> okay. Uh, the last three non-COVID questions that are likely some of the most fun. Where would you go if you could visit any place on earth and why? And you can't have gone that you could Well, so I, I've always wanted to go to Tanzania and do a safari. I just, I, I just worry that animals won't be able to roam like that for forever. And I would just yes. like to see that and, you know, just kind of honor the planet that way and just kind of see it as it, as it is you know, like that. So I've, I've always wanted to just see that for real. Okay. What was your childhood dream job and why? So, um, when I, I, I wanted to be president. You want to be president too? I knew it. I was like, she yes. didn't want to be president as well. So when I was nine years old, I saw this thing about animal abuse and, you know, I, I was really upset by it. Oh boy. And I can remember, I don't know if you remember the kind of paper, I'm probably showing my age, but it had like these lines, you know, on it for you to write cursive. And it was like, yeah, right? Yes. Oh, yeah. Yes. I hated it because oh, I was terrible at too. cursive. I was terrible at cursive, but I like, I, and so I can remember taking out this paper and writing um, a letter to President Ford. And I, I got a letter back. You did? I did. And I can remember signing like Katie Plaque's nine years old. What, what, what did it say? What did the letter back say? Thank you so much for writing me. I really appreciate how you're looking after for animals when they can't take care of themselves. I know you're going to do good things. Sincerely, <laughs> President Gerald Ford. And I like have this little letter. And so I was like, you know what? I want to be president because like, you know, because I was so touched by that letter and and also just like that somebody who is as important as the president, and I don't know that he really wrote me back that letter, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You know, I, at the time was like, it's amazing. And 
also like I wanted to change the world, you know, <laughs> like I really and I thought like presidents get to change the world. And so I, you know, that's what I wanted to do. Still argue you're changing the world. <laughs> I'm, I'm doing it in my way. Yes. I think, and you're doing a damn good job about it. I've watched it and I get to be a part of it. So it's pretty cool. Okay. One of my favorites. What book are you, book or books? Well, so, you, you know, reading? I just finished All the Light We Cannot See. And oh my gosh, I love that book so much. It is so beautiful. It is such a story of love, compassion, kindness, loss, all together. And the characters are just so amazingly complicated and beautiful. It, it's just a must read. I, I just, it, it is really, read. truly an extraordinary book. So I, I would really recommend it. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, and there's, I've, I have never read a book like that. It's just really beautiful. Well, Dr. Katie Plax, you are an incredible person. More than enough is definitely you. I appreciate you so much as a friend, colleague, mentor, confidant, the person I can talk about anything. And thanks for just everything you did during the pandemic and continue to do. Well, thanks for having me. You know, I was very nervous to come on this and I was like, okay. So you were very patient with me and I appreciate that. And um, it's been a fun conversation. Thanks for listening to this episode of Capturing COVID with my good friend, great colleague, great mentor, Dr. Katie Plax. In this episode, we touched on Katie's experience with supporting children and adolescents during the pandemic. Despite the incredible challenges or many challenges that COVID-19 brought forth, Katie remained steadfast in her dedication to supporting children and adolescents in foster care and provided healthcare services and resources to many who did not have anywhere else to turn. Her devotion to our community prior to the pandemic, during the pandemic, especially during these unpredictable, unprecedented times, demonstrates role models exactly what resilience is and what advocacy can really look like to support and make sure our children get what they need. And that was probably best exemplified with the work and collaborative work done in helping kids return to school. I will say Katie sent me a poem once that I think epitomizes her and I'll read you that poem. It says, I dream of a better world and aspire to join in the march to attain it. I blaze with courage and conviction. I am called to action. I am a light maker. Thank you, Katie, for joining us on this podcast. And of course, thanks to our incredible producers, Sheridan Thomas and Grace Yen, for producing this show. Until next time, have an awesome week. Oh, but I don't